Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session. I'm joined by friend of the show, David Russler Germain. David, it's a pleasure to see you back. Good to be here, Vinay. How are you? I'm doing well. So you've, you've been, you're a two-peter on plenary session. You came, you talked about CAR T-cells. You came back, you talked about MSTP. I got to tell you, that's a popular episode. I've gotten a lot of emails about that, that discussion. People, people, people like what you say. You know, by being an MSTP, you're free to trash MSTPs in a way that I am not. <laughs> trash, trash, yeah. No, it's actually kind of creepy scrolling through my own YouTube recommended videos and seeing my own face on it. <laughs> um, I've never done, had that happen before. Yeah, I'm glad that there's. Uh, if uh, if anyone ever searches for me, all you get is some Indian actress, which I think is the it's the way it's meant to be. Um, one of the things people pointed out, uh, they wanted me to ask you as a follow up, so I thought I'd ask you. They said, yeah. um, "What what does David think? How does David extend his philosophy?" And I guess let me just give a quick summary for the listeners. The listeners, you know, David came on and he made a good convincing case that obviously. Medical scientists, um, physician scientists are a very important uh, player in the ecosystem. And the MSTP program, uh, although it uh, has definitely produced some good people, the question is, how do we make it as efficient as possible? And he pointed out a number of ways in which you might wonder if it could be made more efficient. And he gave some solutions um, for how we might shift where the PhD training is, other ways we can empower physician scientists so that there's less attrition along the pipeline. Um, the question I got that a listener posed was, um, what do you think about the PhD program? So this listener said that, look, you guys, uh, you know, you talk the talk about MSTP, but we have so many PhD, we have a PhD mill and we got all these PhDs and they spend a lot of time and very few of them stay in academics. So how would David extend, or if he would extend his philosophy to the pure PhD world? What are your thoughts? So I guess I'll ask a question to your question. You're saying, how do we make traditional PhD training better to keep people in academia? Oh, that's one interpretation of the question. But I guess I would say, I mean, you have a few options. Option One option would be, um, one option would be to say that, um, that uh, we're training too many PhDs, uh, that, 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 that is a problem, and that actually most of these people could get away with masters. And in fact, the fact that there are no jobs for those PhDs tell me that the PhDs are just a cheap labor force for the labs of the people who stay on. Okay, so that's a possibility. Yeah. The other possibility is you could say, how might we improve the training in a way that more of them can stay in academics? Or three, maybe uh, the third possibility is I think you could make the case that um, this is exactly how it ought to be, that we want to train them and they want to be really good at this PhD work and then they can pivot to yeah. venture capital or whatever it is they do. So I guess that's that's the question. I guess, how, yeah. how do you think about PhDs? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, the 2020s more than the 20 teens, we're seeing institutions be more eager to train PhDs to go into more diverse careers. Um, when I started my MD PhD program in the early 2000s and into the 20 teens, I think everybody's expectation was that a PhD student should want to be an academic PI out the other end. Mm-hmm. And not only does that mean not pursuing an industry job potentially, but it also means not being a staff scientist, for uh-huh. instance. And I think there is now an increasing appreciation for people that want to be career bench scientists with advanced degrees. And the NIH did make funds available to that to pay right around 100000 a little more to people on sort of three to five year rolling bases to be staff scientists mm-hmm. with sort of a possible mentor role for technicians and students under them. Um, and, and I think that's great. I think that's actually going to be needed because the industry jobs that people with PhDs go on to take are often that type of position, sort of Correct. like a small group manager or a professional scientist, people overseeing projects, um, not having to write papers and write for grants all the time. And I think those are those are different types of people um, and they're very different types of jobs. And I think we're slowly inching in the direction where the training and the um, sort of ethos of PhD training is going to be more suitable and directed towards those diverse outcomes. That's a good answer. Good answer. So I think the listener will be will be sated. And I guess my answer would be, I agree with everything you said. I think we ought to make those as more viable career paths. The other thing I would add is, I don't fault anyone for not aspiring to be a PI, um, because although there are many benefits to being a PI, um, having to spend 60 hours a week writing very boring grant proposals and primarily being a money manager, it's not yeah. that appealing to me. That's not why I got into science. Um, And the only other thing I might add is that maybe in some disciplines and at some universities, maybe they are training too many. I don't know. Um, You know, I, maybe that's not the case. That's fair. fair. I I think just as, um, you know, people that do MD PhD shouldn't take offense when we say, well, how could we make MD PhD training better? Right. We also would ask that PIs not take offense when their trainees don't want to be them. It's not necessarily personal. Um, I mean, there can be, you can have great respect for the PI and say, I couldn't do the job you do. I couldn't work as hard as you do. I couldn't, I don't write as well as you write. Um, And so instead I'd like to pursue the following work-life balance and the following types of work and not other types of work. And I think more PIs are coming to the understanding that not all of their trainees should have to try to become them. Um, (laughs) David, it may come as some surprise to you, but uh, few people who've worked with me aspire to be anything like me. I don't know if that'll come as a shock to you. (laughs) And then the other plug I have to make out of due diligence as a PI is that we have launched our laboratory website. That's right. It's a laboratory website, David. It's vkprasadlab.com. And you can check it out. Listeners can check out vkprasadlab.com. The brainchild of Logan Powell, vkprasadlab.com. It is a just a classic, just another laboratory website. If you've seen a laboratory website, here's just another laboratory for you. Um, okay, let's talk about what we're here to talk about, which is the great, the greatest thing ever, a very, very costly drug with no cure to fraction, uh, idacaptogene viclusil, idacaptogene viclusil for myeloma. Okay, you're a CAR-T man. You've defended CAR-T. Today, I'm going to put you to your limit. Here's a CAR-T, different than other CAR-Ts. 
Yeah. Don't cure people. So let's let's talk about this. Um, you take it away. What, what do yeah, I need so to know that's, about um, So this product, BB2121 or mm, Idacel, I'll call it, or yes. Idacaptogene Viclusol is You have now, to call it by its full name always. <laughs> yeah, is, um, or Avecma brand name is uh-huh. a now FDA approved um, anti-BCMA CAR T-cell allogeneic or sorry, autologous CAR T autologous, yeah. autologous product for the treatment of relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. Um, it is also now licensed by BMS, um, which was the maker of the Lisocell or Brianzi product that we talked about last time, which is just a coincidence that it's the same manufacturer. There is no, there's no intent there to, uh-huh. to pick anything apart, just temporal coincidence. Yes. Um, and so this paper, this product was recently described um, in a very prominent New England Journal paper um, published just this past February, um, describing the results of the phase two, um, study of 140 patients. Um, and we'll talk about the outcomes and we'll talk about some of those nuances. And so just for some background of the CAR T aspect of things, um, you know, we often talk about what is the co-stimulatory domain? What is Mm -hmm. the intracellular part of the, um, CAR protein? Um, this is a 41BB, um, co-stimulatory domain, which um, tends to make CRS a little later or smoother compared to the CD28 varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, a Liso cell product also uses a 41BB design. Um, you know, we, we can talk about later that people are trying to work on um, bispecific CAR T cells and even fancier designs, but this is a single um, anti-BCMA product. And so, um, in this study, um, wait a second. They, Hold on. I want. I want to yeah. run this one thing by you. Okay. Um, here are the here are the here are the CAR Ts that have been approved. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tisagenic Lucil, Kimraya, yeah. Novartis. That's a 41BB co-stimulatory domain CD19. We yeah. got the B cell ALL. We got DLBCL. We got Axicabtogene Silalucil. Yes, Carta. As in yes to CAR T. Yes, Carta. Uh, that's got the CD28. This is the Kite Pharmaceutical product, the CD28. It's for the DLBCL, and then they got that Zuma 5 for follicular. Then we got the Brexicabtogene Autolucil. That's also the Gilead, the Kite Pharma. Um, that's CD22. Um, that's the mantle cell lymphoma drug. Um, I think people say that the two CD20, sorry, CD28, the CD28 co-stimulatory domains, that's the strong stuff. That's the stuff with more toxicity. That's what my CAR-T colleagues tell me. I don't know mm-hmm. if, if that's the root yeah. word on the street. Um, yeah. Okay, then we have the one we talked about last time, uh, Lysocaptogene Maralusil, which is the Juno Therapeutics, which is acquired, or which is, I guess, acquired by BMS. Um, that's 41BB. And then Idacaptogene Vicolusil, which is the Bluebird bio compound that we're talking about today, 41BB as well, also acquired by BMS. So now we've got Novartis, we've got Gilead, we got BMS. Um, it's a, it's a full house. Um, so all the, the other four are all anti CD19 products with correct. different for, yes. with domains as you were saying, and those are all for BALL or, um, B non B cell non Hodgkin's lymphomas. Uh-huh. This is the first myeloma, um, product in this space. And that's good. Um, to, that's it, important to note. It's the BC, yeah, the BC cell maturation. The same that the Volantamab antibody drug conjugate targets as well. Hmm. Um, so that's Volantamab. A, I a, see. A, a competing drug with the same um, cell surface target on the myeloma cells. Yeah. I see. It's just like Belantamab, but easy on the eyes, easy on the eyes. Okay. So why don't you, okay, let's jump in. So this is a, this is a classic CAR-T study. So double blind, randomized, control trial, placebo controlled. Is that, is that correct? 
Exactly. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, in all fairness, all of these studies were sort of conceived around the same set of years before any of the others were truly completed, but they're all sort of enrolling the middle 100s plus number of patients at a few different doses of CAR T cells in total um, onto what is in essence a single arm intervention, just a different a dose escalation schema um, with sort of an interesting blend of efficacy and toxicity as the primary outcomes. And I think it's interesting to sort of read the papers now that they're published through that lens of, you know, these were, you know, the initial papers that came out with the first 10 to 20 patients were very clearly an, a safety signal paper. Um, but then the same study at the sort of conclusion uh, manuscripts are much more of the efficacy slant. Okay. And um, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, any idea why B cell maturation antigen was the one they went after first in myeloma? Any, any thoughts there? I mean, it is a very plasma cell specific surface antigen, um, more, um, more so even than like CD38 or CD138 or other things of that nature. I see. More um, so than even Darrow's target CD38. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's more like hematopoietic stem cell overlap, um, in some of the other ones. Now I, I, I don't, I can't like cite the specific figure to say like head to head, why one would be better than the other. But, um, like if you did a bunch of like IHC on marrow and yes, that's what I'm or not, it would be more specific to the myeloma cells. I see. You know, many years ago, I walked by a poster for rituximab. Um, as you remember, CD20 antibody used widely. And it said the slogan for rituximab was where hope and CD20 are found. And you really needed both. You didn't just need CD20. You needed the hope as well. And so I think this is where BCMA and hope are found because I guess that's, that's the mantra. Okay, so let me ask you, one thing that jumped out at me in this paper when I was reading it, obviously hours before we spoke, <laughs> not, not like minutes before we spoke, but hours before. One thing that jumped out at me is the lymphodepletion. The lymphodepletion that's given here, I guess I should tell listeners, of course, what happens is you get connected to a machine that collects your cells. Those cells are shipped off to a plant where they squirt things with pipettes on those cells. You probably know more about that said pipetting than I know. Um, and then the cells are grown up to a certain amount and they're shipped back. And then before you squirt them in the person, uh, before you infuse them in the person, you got to give lymphodepletion. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The reason that lymphodepletion is given is that if I were to give you a CAR-T product without lymphodepletion, you may instantly react against the CAR-T product and you may kill off the product in, in just a matter of days. Um, is that a fair, is that a fair yeah, statement? Yeah, that um, sort of making space for the cells is one aspect of the, of the lymphodepletion chemothera chemotherapy. Another is to um, reduce your own potential immunity against the novel surface proteins of the um, car coming in. Um, and then third, and um, some, some uh, friends on Twitter have like enlightened me to some of this more than I knew before, but you also get a very um, pro-CAR T cytokine server milieu. Um, milieu in the days following lymphodepleting chemotherapy that does um, sort of synergize, if you will, with the, with the administration of the cells themselves. So um, it is helpful like to have it um, have, have the lymphodepleting chemotherapy administered in that fashion. When that you said, say making space, you mean literally uh, freeing up space in the marrow for these cells to go? I mean, people, people make that argument. Um, and as I mean, it's, I think it's more, a little more relevant to lymphomas where your lymphodepleting chemotherapy is actually does have more anti-lymphoma efficacy. 
-hmm. um, but you are um, sort of clearing out some of the native T and B and uh, cells um, to provide your CAR T room, room to, to proliferate. I see, um, the, the proliferative tissues. advantage. Um, and, and what's interesting, I mean, um, it's a very minor point, but there are CAR T studies looking at alternative conditioning regimens, either bendamustine monotherapy or fludarabine bendamustine combinations. Mm -hmm. um, one of the CD30 CAR T that was recently published for Hodgkin's and yeah, Jayco um, used all three of those different combinations, Flusi with the other two. I um, see. And, and so that's interesting in its own right. Who did that? Um, Is that Korkendorfer? I don't know if that was the UNC group or the Texas group. Um, I, I don't think it was okay. the NCI. Okay. Um, but okay, they, well, um, yeah. But you would imagine in the myeloma context that of the um, that bendamustine might have some interesting anti-myeloma activity as a conditioning regimen. Well, I was going to say that about this, the cyclophosphamide. Okay, here's the well, lymphodepletion that, here. That too. Yes, yes. Yeah, fludarabine, yeah. 30, milligrams per, 30 milligrams per meter squared. Okay, I'll take it. But then yeah. cyclophosphamide, 300 milligrams per meter squared on days, three consecutive days in a row of that dose. Definitely has um, some anti-myeloma activity. That's the Cyborg D. Cyborg D, we give that over three weeks, and now you're giving it yeah. all at once. And then they say something in the manuscript that jumped out at me where they say that they're only attributing 4% of the responses to conditioning. But that doesn't give, I mean, I guess the, the, the problem in my mind is what I think what they're saying is you gave up, we gave you all this conditioning and only 4% of people responded before we gave the product. Ergo, it was due to the conditioning. But I guess like conditioning could still generate response, you know, two weeks later, three weeks later, four weeks later, and then it's going to be a wash between how much was the product and how much was the conditioning. Yeah. I mean, not only is it in all of these trials for CAR T, the question of how much is the cellular infusion itself doing the work, yes. but how much what is happening to the patient in all of the weeks leading up to getting that um product and we talk about bridging therapy um, yes. for for all of these studies that's yes. therapy that you get once you've been leukophoresed but before you get your lymphodepleting chemotherapy mm -hmm. um the majority of patients on this study got um bridging therapy it was 88 <clears> percent <throat> now less than 10 percent of them had uh, objective partial or complete responses sure. so it's a small nudge in the right direction, but um, most of these people can't tolerate large treatment-free intervals. However, I'll add that as we thought, we could talk about the sort of enrollment criteria for this paper. Yeah. Um, patients had to um, progress within 60 days of their last dose. So the question is like, are patients really on continuous therapy previously, or that were they up to two months off therapy? Could you have just restarted the therapy that they were on previously? If you're if you gave them a two month treatment break and then you see their myeloma labs getting a little worse, of course. Um, okay, um, I, I guess um, it, I mean there's so many things I could say. I guess I'll just say a few of them. I'll say a few of them. I guess yeah. one thing is um, one of the things that jumped out at me was um, many of these people. I think 60 percent were penta refractory to I guess what Imids and Dara and Kyprolis and then Velcade, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but it's not 100%. I mean, and you could have made the argument that it could have been 100% of people out to be refractory to all those compounds. I'd hate to take somebody with this who has never even seen the wonder drug of daratumumab. Um, uh, okay, that's one argument. The next thing is your point is well taken that in myeloma, often you can reinduce response from giving somebody a drug they haven't seen in a while. Who amongst us has not played the game of if they've last gotten POM, then now they can get LEN. And if they've last gotten LEN, now they can get POM. We've all been there. Um, yeah. yeah. I guess, the, and then the last thought I had was, but I guess the, the point I will make, and I think the point that neither of us will dispute is that this drug 
definitely generates responses in some people. There's no doubt about that. It's a response generating drug for some. Um, and uh, okay, why don't you take us through any of the other inclusion criteria of who they're enrolling in this study that that you thought piqued your interest? Um, I mean, what's interesting, and I think the listeners should know, is that the study enrolled patients that had at least three prior regimens, um, but right around 90% of them had had four or more regimens previously, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and thus the FDA label um, factors that in and says patients need to be on relapsed after four or more prior lines of therapy <clears throat> since there really was a scant um, scant, pop, scant group of patients that had um, relapsed after only three lines previously. So that's, that's one variable. I see. Um, I heard some people griping about that on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I don't know whether that was expected or not. I certainly didn't expect it, given what, how I follow these things. But I don't know if people knew that was coming. Um, pleasantly, uh, ninety-four percent of the patients on the study had had a prior auto. I think that's within what you would expect. Um, I would have been upset, I guess, if it was less than ninety. Um, sure. I guess, um, and interestingly, a third had had more than one auto, mm -hmm. uh, which. I guess will be very much influenced by what institution you're coming from and how, how you view the either tandem auto or repeat auto. Yeah. Um, but they had a nice mix of high risk cytogenetics uh, around 15 to 20%, depending on which dosing cohort, mm -hmm. um, you know, is the ECOG zero or one really that representative of the patients in this population? Um, not really. There were three total patients with ECOG of two. Um, they tended to be between 55 and 60 years of age, maximum of 78. You know, it's probably a little younger of a myeloma population that that's this refractory going on this study than in the real world. Um, Nothing says real world like six prior lines of therapy and ECOG zero. Doesn't that just scream real world to you, David? <laughs> it's exactly what we all see every day. So it's just like, it's just like a Wednesday. It's just another yeah. Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's very yeah. good to point out. I mean, we have to always remind people as you read the literature. Um, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to picture the people in this study and the picture you're painting is maybe they're not the average person who's failed a lot of therapy or sorry, whose therapies have failed them. God forbid we make that error. Um, but they are a select group. The people who have progressed through several lines of therapy, good functional status, often younger than average age. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was 50, 50 ECOG zero or one. And I have to say, I mean, I, if you ask me what distribution of patients that are triple refractory or even two lines of therapy refractory for multiple myeloma that have an ECOG of zero, it, it's nowhere close to 50%, I That's think, right. especially given yeah. the rate of pathologic fractures in this illness. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a different level of chronically physically disabling relative to other malignancies that might swing more up and down in terms of full, more fully functional and then perhaps very toxic and sick and then more fully functional at other times. That's uh, super well said. Okay, go on. Okay, so now you've painted me the picture. Um, we talked a little bit about lymphodepletion. We're gonna talk about um, the drug was approved um, at a certain dose. What was it? Uh, and and this trial is including a few people who got less than that dose, fair to say? Yeah, so um, you know they, they do a dose escalation um, in this study from 150 million cells to 300 million cells to 450 million cells. Yeah. Only four patients got that first dose, and the latter two doses um, were split 70 and 54 patients into each, respectively. So the indication is for an approved dose of 300 to, um, four, to 450 or 460 million cells. I see. Um, 
Interestingly, in contrast to the other BMS product, there is no precise CD4 to CD8 ratio here, which probably stems right is reflecting the fact that it was a Bluebird bioproduct. Oh, that's one right. of the and then the other one um, was developed um, by, by a different firm. Different company. So, oh, yeah, so that, a lot of little right, nuances no, I'll, I'll within I, the BMS products. Yeah. Uh-huh. The lysocab to gene Maraluso had that sweet, sweet CD4-8 ratio. David, David, when, the, the fact you pointed that out to me really warms my heart because I, I see the, I know why. When you're the third kid on the block, you gotta, and you want people to use you, you gotta come up with some story why you're the one they should go to and you start thinking about CD4-8 ratios. But when you're the only BCMA car T in town, you don't need any stories. Your story is your response rate. What do you think? I, that's probably fair. Um, <laughs> but I also don't think that the ratio, I, someone will, con- will convince me otherwise, I'm sure on Twitter, but I, the ratio is 60-40, 40-60 for the other products. So uh-huh. it's not- 50 50 so, is not that far off from 60 40. Are so, you saying uh, the ratio is bullshit? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I will not be picking a product based on the ratio. I wouldn't. You know, I mean, wouldn't. The ratio is the silliest. I mean, come on. I mean, yes. I mean, immunology is important, but at some point you're just worshiping. Um, you know, and I, I laugh so hard because, you know, so often in um, drug development, people. You know, people tell you, um, what was it? I mean, we can just go back to internal medicine. Wasn't there one beta blocker that came out really, it was really new, but they kept saying it was like beta one selective. And I was like, I don't want to care about beta one selective. I want the beta blocker with the phase three data that shows there's a survival benefit. Get your beta one selective out of here. Nabivolol. Yeah. 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 I'm like, Oh yeah. I was like, obviously, obviously when you want to control hypertension with the beta blocker, which by the way, you never want to do, because it's like the worst class of medicine. Why would you want this one and not the cheaper ones? Okay. Get out of here. All right. Fine. Bistolic. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we we're getting to that level. We're getting to that level of, of CD four, eight ratio. Um, yeah. Um, okay, good, good. So that's a, that's an astute observation. Okay. Go on, go on. I, yeah. I interrupted. You. So, um, you know, I think this leads us into like who, you know, we were talking about who the study enrolled and we can yeah. just briefly mention how many they enrolled 140 patients and 128 yeah. received the product. Uh-huh. Um, and like and all is, good CAR T studies, we never speak of those other patients because we don't want to include them in any denominators. Lest well, we no, I mean, that's, that, that's the point. I think, I think if, if I had to say what from oncology, we should be like giving, which papers from oncology should we give to third year medical students to hammer home different points? I think the CAR-T studies are an interesting set of papers to ask them to think about intention, intention to treat analyses. Um, I, I can't think of any uh, any other um, field that would be um, a better lesson in this case because we're, you know, you're enrolling patients to a study but not measuring the primary efficacy outcome or safety outcome in 10%, 15% sometimes of the patients that enroll on the study. So I understand that if you wanted to look at duration of response, you have to have gotten the product and like, you know, yeah. you want the number, if you get the product, yeah. how long will your response be? If you get a CR that that's fair in yeah. a secondary endpoint, but, um, well, I, DO, I think, you know, yeah, DOR is yeah. by definition a per protocol endpoint. Cause you don't get it without the response, but, um, yeah. Uh, don't talk too much about what you just said because M- M- Mani Moyudin is going to be really angry if anyone scoops him on this paper we're submitting. But yes, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head. That imagine what if one looked at all these studies and corrected these response rates? What would one find? I I would I, love I, to read that paper. Yeah, well, hopefully someday 
when when reviewer two when if something god forbid were to happen to reviewer two then maybe we'll be able to get this uh get this through he just needs one three and four we just yeah. the reviewer two is my barrier um okay good that's an excellent point as well um yeah. um so okay. um yeah. they enrolled 140 they gave the product to 128 and this is probably one of the quicker turned around party products of the How others. Fast. I don't recall the exact median dates of the others, but 15 day turnaround is pretty good. Yeah. I was a little confused by the range. I don't know how the range could be one to 33. <laughs> one is one is so fast. You're like, you didn't do anything. <laughs> it's like, is that just the next day? You didn't do anything with, I pro, I don't know what they did with one day. Was but that the one, first patient where they did it like, in the institution's GMP facility. I don't, how can you, just, I mean, I don't, don't understand. you have to expand it, David? Don't you have to expand it? Doesn't take some time? That's what I don't understand. I don't know how, I don't know how one could be an option. Maybe it's, I a, mean, maybe it's a typo. Maybe it's just a 10. 10 is the soonest I could imagine. All right, here, put it in context. For instance, Tisagen like Lucille, I think in the original Novartis was uh, 21, 21 yeah, days. Around three weeks, is this what I recall? Three weeks. Yeah. And then I think the, that um, Axicab to Gene, Axicab to gene, uh, silolucil, obviously, silolucil. And I didn't just look at my note there. Um, I think that was about 17 days. Yeah, in the, slightly, um, yeah. And, and slightly I remember, better or slightly lower fail, product fail rate than the. Um, you sound like you're talking to the same uh, uh, kite farmer representative that I'm talking to. <laughs> no, we've had issues. I, I, um, I, it's, it's something we think okay. about. Like, okay. how likely yeah. well, would we tolerate a, a manufacturer fail? I know, but I okay. I like I agree with you that that that's something to think about. But my question is, st uh, can one statistically say with certainty that one is better than the other? I don't know the answer. I mean, I haven't looked at the data. Okay, but but I agree with you that like there's nothing more depressing than having to go meet your patient, look them in the eye, and tell them that this thing failed. I don't even have a product for you, and now we have to give you, I don't know, cyclophosphamide 300 milligrams per meter squared for three days. You know, which is what we, you know, I don't know, I don't know what you yeah. have to tell them. Yeah, but it would be tough. Yeah, so yeah, I, I mean, we don't it, want failure. Yeah, it's something that um. You know, I, I I think attendings tend to put a little mental energy in to say, if the CAR T can't be made, what am I going to do next? Yes. Because the dilemma is that it's very rare that you can get an alternative study drug into the patient's arm yeah. within a week, let alone two weeks often, yeah. given the fact that a number of the, I mean, you just look at the bispecific studies requiring scans, biopsies of tissue, you know, the, the, the workup is non-trivial. And so, yes. um, you know, if, if you are waiting to give your patient the drug and you're giving them some bridging therapy, uh, you, you do have to have a backup plan yes. in some cases. I mean, they produced, um, I think it was every patient had the, um, successful production for this one, which is great, but not every other CAR T product can claim that. Hmm. Interesting. Every patient, but minus those 20 like, people that couldn't get product, or did they also have successful, successful production, but they could not get it? Let me remind myself. Yeah. Well, while you're reminding yourself, I have to entertain the audience because I'm trying to record. So oh, this is a note to the audience. Um, you remind yourself. I'll, I'll talk to the audience. So um, welcome. This is Plenary Session. We no longer make edits in the middle of interviews. Why? Um, because we found that was extremely onerous and time consuming. And so we're trying to deliver a finished product. And I should have informed David of this <laughs> before we started. But 
I will say. Um, I think he's right that, um, and the reason I even asked was I recently was reviewing something and somebody said they had like a hundred percent success rate and I almost thought it was too good to be true. Um, there typically is some failure rate, um, but um, uh, the closer it is to a hundred percent, obviously the better the better it is for all involved. And, I, and there's a learning curve there. And of course, some of these products have gotten, I think a little bit better post uh, uh, while on the market um, than they were in the clinical trials. And that's okay too. Okay, if you're not finding it, let's go to the next thing. One manufacturer failure. One, okay. Of the 140, yeah. That's not bad, actually. Not so bad. I bet, I mean, BMS, they got a lot of cash and they know how to get these facilities. It's only in the good. supplement. That's why I couldn't find it. I see. Well, <laughs> all good things are in the supplement, like post-protocol therapy, my favorite. It's always in the supplement. Um, okay, so, so here we are. Um, let's fast forward a little bit. You've given the conditioning regimen, which is awfully anti-myeloma. You've given the product. Um, tell me about the responses. What kind of responses are we generating? And then we're going to talk about my favorite duration of, uh, but what yeah. kind of responses are we getting? Yeah. So 73% of the 128 that received the product had a response. Uh, 33% had a complete response or better. Um, and as is becoming the case in my modern myeloma studies, MRD testing is mm. a vital component of this for better or worse and MRD negative status less than 10 to the negative fifth nucleated cells was confirmed in 26% of patients receiving the drug. Um, but you could also slice and dice the pie saying that roughly 80% of the patients who had a CR were in an MRD negative CR. I see. Okay. So in order to be MRD negative, I'm, I'm saying that you, you must at least achieve CR to be MRD negative. Okay. So that's one thing. MRD, minimal residual disease. Does it actually say like um, what the threshold of MRD they used here was? They did it both with a 10 to the negative fifth and 10 to the negative sixth. Uh, and on flow or on uh, that uh, um, uh, VDJ sequencing stuff? Um, the VDJ. VDJ. Oh, the good. The good. I mean, yeah. I guess what your listeners know about MRD. I mean, MRD is, I mean, I don't know. We've been here before in oncology. This is a road we've traveled down before. And the road is when you get drugs that push tumor volume really, really low, don't be surprised if by old measures of response, you're having high percentage of people that achieve response. We saw that with imatinib. When imatinib came out, the, the, the response criteria were so obsolete, we had to invent entirely new response criteria. Now we use, you know, BCR-able transcript levels um, when compared against a housekeeping gene. Um, that's what we do for CML. And we're talking about, I don't know, uh, 10 to the minus five and 10 to the minus, uh, I don't know, actually, I, I let me not speculate because it's been a while since I checked all those numbers, but I'm talking about very low levels of uh, response there. Um, same thing with myeloma. We have a lot of drugs that were able to generate CR. Now people are talking about which generate more MRD. And of course, I guarantee you, there ain't no doubt about it that MRD is a prognostic marker, i.e. if you are MRD negative, you're going to have a longer duration of survival than if you are not MRD negative. But that is not the same to say it's a surrogate marker. The biggest misconception to prove that it's a surrogate, you got to prove to me in studies, interventional studies of drugs in multiple myeloma, that drugs that increase the delta MRD negativity are drugs that improve OS commensurately. And yeah. it's an uphill battle because yeah. it's very likely that MRD positivity in a front or middle line therapy can be overcome by a really good effective next line therapy. And some people may interpret that fact as um, proof that we ought to use MRD and not wait for survival, but it's actually proof of the opposite, that MRD is not a faithful predictor of what really matters in this moment right now, and that survival is a better benchmark for that. So I think it cuts both ways. So here, of course, like all these CAR-T, they say that their CAR-T is potent because we get some MRD negativity. 
Yeah. So Let me tell I'll, you. Um, yeah, go I'm going to add one more layer of biological nuance to this. And this okay. is coming at it from both a flow cytometry um, <clears throat> as well as, but predominantly a VDJ sequencing and or CT DNA level of MRD testing perspective. So, you know, you start with your cell that get that becomes cancer and it gets its first mutation. Okay. Then it gets its second and third and those clones expand. I think what commonly gets missed is that when you prune back the oncologic evolutionary tree with therapy, you don't always know whether the mutated cells that remain are disease or pre-disease or much of anything. And, you know, you can start take AML from one perspective and say, you know, DNMG3A mutations, IDH mutations, et cetera. Several of those mutations, like the DNP3 ones, TET2, ASXL1, are more commonly found in, uh, or can be commonly found in patients with, you know, benign clonal hematopoiesis. Sure, sure. Um, and so if you're detecting that mutation as your MRD event, you are, you can often just be detecting a pre-malignant state. And so similarly in the myeloma context, you know, when you're looking at BDJ, um, clones, you know, the, we have has the myeloma conditions, they're called MGUS and they're called smoldering myeloma. And so when you treat myeloma and you prune back the malignancy to some very small burden of disease, if that's really what it is, it is still plausible that the residual mutated or VDJ positive cells mm -hmm. are not actually fully malignantly transformed. And that's why you need a disease specific and assay specific assessment of MRD as to whether it's a real surrogate or not. Because in mm -hmm. some cases like post allo DNMT3A mutations in AML, that is not going to be a great MRD test because that can just be a benign mutation often, especially in that patient population versus, you know, if you have a residual KRAS mutation on like super dilute CTDNA after like a Whipple, that's a very different situation for a pancreatic cancer patient. So super disease specific, super assay specific. And I think we need to remember cancer is like a clonal and evolutionary process. No, you're okay. Okay. Super interesting. Okay. So I guess what, what you're saying is if actually maybe the tree is the wrong way to conceptualize it. Cause the tree implies that as you prune the tree, you left with the stump and the stump is the pre-malignant thing. And the idea would be the more MRD negative, the more likely you are to have cured somebody end quote. Yeah. But what you're saying is it's kind of a three-dimensional tree and you know, the tree is floating in space and you're just pruning from all different sides. And you could be left with the stump, that pre-malignant thing. And maybe you're in a good situation um, or you're left with one of the branches and that thing's going to grow back up later. And then the other point you're making is actually it cuts both ways because if you're using MRD to proscribe therapy, it might be the stump you're treating, and that's not the thing you exactly. care about treating. Exactly. Uh, it's not the you know right. Um, whereas you want to treat those those um, those fern branches, I guess. I don't know. Maybe we need another analogy for something that's branching. Use the tree analogy. If you have a large tree in your yard, <laughs> yes, there are going there's going to be a certain number of leafing and fruiting branches that you need to yeah. cut off in yes. order for the tree to not survive, okay. right? There can still be a stump and the tree will never grow back often is the if case, If you say right? so. Yes, so I'm familiar be, with this stump that doesn't grow. Okay, I'm with you. A yes. or two yes. that cannot give you back your malignancy without <laughs> acquiring those yes. other mutations again. And that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. That's a great point. And then the tree has to be in three-dimensional space because there's no reason why the drugs are preferentially chewing the branches than the stump. Because they, you know, when you normally prune a tree, you start from the top. I don't know. I, I've been reading books about 
about logging, but uh, that's a side, that's a side <laughs> issue. But I have read on a, a, a surprising number of logging books from my days in Oregon, where that was actually something people care about. Okay, anyway, enough about trees, enough about this. Okay, MRD. Okay, it's a surrogate. Or, no, sorry, I'm sorry, it's prognostic. And uh, I have yet to see data that's a surrogate. And uh, don't tell, don't tell uh, 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 Jansen that. No, don't tell the companies that. Um, okay, so um, you're, t- and you gave me the number, 70%, something like that. You said response rate. Yeah, so now- in, in the 300 million cell arm, it was 70% overall response rate and 80 in the other. Okay. Um, a roughly similar fraction in each arm being um, CR or better. So um, that's sort of why the um, range of doses um, was approved versus I a see. response I'm with rate. You. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, a 70% response rate, uh, we got to talk about the duration of response and then I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm willing to pay. And then we'll talk about that. So 70% response rate. Um, what is the median PFS and what is the duration of response? Let me just take a drink of water. That's not used for comical. No. <laughs> um, so the, um, median PFS was only 8.8 months. 8.8 months. Yeah. And I thought if you were pruning this back to the stump, it would be better than that. 70% response rate. Okay, what's the median duration of response? Um, I'm looking for the number. Median duration uh, was 10.7 months. Well, well, well. Now, now I'm not so happy. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 10 to 11, depending on your <clears throat> dose and like we can ignore the lower dose cohort um, in this context. I can so get yeah, that so, much with 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 the uh, with the Darapom dicks. I can get that much with it. I, I suspect. I don't know. I mean, there's no control arm. God forbid. Um, but that's the issue. That's the issue. Yeah. The issue is. Yeah. So that's the issue. I mean, um, now these patients are not beyond really 18 to 22 months of follow up at this time point, but. Um, it's pretty clear just looking at the shapes of the Kaplan-Meier curves and where the censoring is happening yeah. that um, there's no cure. It's unlikely that any patient would be cured by this therapy. And even like the prominent review articles describing this trial and the preceding ones um, for drugs in this space um, are very quick to admit almost like surprisingly quick to admit that they don't anticipate these particular therapies being curative. Um, I was surprised so, to read that in Nature Reviews Oncology, actually. Oh, uh, Nature Reviews Oncology? That's yeah, mine. they were uh, very, very, uh, very straightforward that they don't expect uh, some of these agents to be curative yet. Who wrote that? Nikhil Munchi? Ken Anderson? That review? Um, no, that's that's uh, Kochendorfer and, and folks. Then oh, I, my friend James Kochendorfer. He was a fellow a few years ahead of me at the NCI. And... Um, Back in those days, we wondered what he was doing because the CAR T wasn't the rage, but we should have, <laughs> we should have felt, taken some notes when he was talking a little bit more. Okay, so um, interesting. I think that this is the big issue. The big issue is, you know, I'm, I'm not happy to, but I think society is willing to, to pay 300 grand for a drug that has some curative fraction. But I don't know how willing we are to pay. You're about to tell me what this costs for a drug that eventually you will progress on. Um, inevitably, you will progress on. Um, yeah. With the side effects, we haven't, we'll talk about, I guess we have to talk about the side effect profile. Um, that's not so good. I mean, I think this is the real problem. I mean, and I guess it also tells you something about this MRD. If this MRD negative were so hot, 
uh, that exactly. some of these people would be cured. Yeah. yeah. The, this MRD, the only thing you're telling me is that your assay is too crappy to see the myeloma that's still in that blood and bone marrow that will eventually grow back. Your assay is no good for that. Um, because if you were really MRD negative and for really meant what we what, what we wished it meant, which was identifying cured people, um, it wouldn't be growing back, but it's growing back rather rapidly. And I think the thing for people not to realize is, you know, if a drug has left less than a 50% response rate, the median PFS is really telling you what happens to people who didn't really respond to your drug because it's less than 50%. So the median will be reached by the people who have progression before. Uh, you know, obviously you, you can just think about that. Um, but if the drug has a 70% response rate, the median PFS is telling you something about people who did in fact respond. And if, it, but the real thing that's telling you about what happens to people who did respond is the median DOR. And if you're telling me it has a follow-up of 24 months, the only median DOR I wanted to hear that would make me happy is NR not reached. And I didn't want to hear 10 points some months. And so that's my bottom line. Um, okay. Tell me what it costs. $419,000. Oh my God. $419,000. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, so some people will argue that a CAR T therapy comes with the intrinsic advantage of if you have a durable response, you get a treatment-free interval. That's right. And I, I think there is some value to that. I, what price and toxicity profile you're willing to tolerate is very much in the eye of the beholder. Um, but it's still a lot of money for a one-year treatment-free interval, um, considering that a time prorated triplet regimen in this context would cost the same, if not less, potentially. Um, and so that brings up the question of, is there any value or any role in society and in, in our pricing schemas to um, reimburse parties um, proportionate to their duration of response? Yeah, you, uh, see, yeah, go on, yeah. You know, because- Yeah, I mean, because, because unlike therapies where you get a monthly pill bottle or a monthly injection or whatever time interval you, you would you, you wanna talk about, um, this is like paying for a car in full. You have written the full check prior or a like, peri drug administration. And yes, everybody knows not everything is going to work a hundred percent of the time. Um, but given how disparate the responses can be, the duration can be that not everyone responds. And then you've paid for a one-year treatment-free interval for the patients that had that one-year treatment interval, but you've paid a year's worth of three other drugs in for a one-month treatment-free interval, really. Right. Um, I mean, that's just a really tough trade-off, and, and I don't think we're ready to answer that question societally yet. Well, that's so interesting because, uh, as you you might know, when Novartis developed the first CAR-T, um, Tisagenlicalusil, or Kimraya, um, they uh, said, uh, I think they piloted that if you didn't have a response in one month, you didn't have to pay. And many of us were like, well, that's not really great savings because you're charging like 400,000 and change. And you know, like 80% of people are gonna have a response at one month. So you're gonna effectively just give a 20% discount, which actually brings it to the price of what uh, Yescarta is, or Axicaptogen. Um, So it's actually like, you know, okay. It's an elaborate way to keep track of a discount that the other company is just giving you off the bat. Okay, fine. But what you're saying is you're like, let's not benchmark it to response. That's not what we really care about. Let's benchmark it to the DOR. And so if there's a fraction of people cured, you know, maybe you're going to get some more money. And if that, if everyone is progressing um, and if you progress rapidly, maybe you shouldn't have to pay the full amount. I'll say one thing. 
if if it is true that no one is cured from this therapy, there's going to be a zero month treatment free interval, David. Let me tell you what will happen. We're just going to put maintenance Revlimid in there. We're going to put maintenance Revlimid right after this product. You get the product, you get your response, and then 10 milligrams of Revlimid or maintenance Velcade or Kyprolis or Dara. You know, why would you stop treatment? And then, you, I, I mean, come on. They're, the first thing they're going to say is, we know they're going to relapse eventually, so we might as well give them some drug. And and yeah. it's not too to- intolerable. It's just a little brevlimid and a little Dara. Yeah, I mean, there are even studies, not in the myeloma space that I'm aware of yet, but using consolidative CAR-T after auto for lymphoma. And I don't know, that's just... Four out of 10 or five out of 10 are cured already? Or I'm not years. quite there yet. Um, I guess it's worth studying, but I'm I, I I I that'll that'll be a high bar to cross for me to think that that's a, a practical and, and cost effective intervention. Um, but to your point about toxicity, um, I, I think yes, that's you froze. Patients had some cytokine release syndrome, um, and this was, you know, saying what fraction was grade three or four is only so useful in the context of the what criteria were used for this study. And these were the 2014 Lee criteria where you could get grade two CRS, even if you had low dose presser requirement or a grade two organ toxicity, which could be up to a 19% drop in your EF. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, 19% drop yeah. in EF? No, that's not a specific to the study nuance. That's just a grade two cardiomyopathy. I, mean, I don't think I really fully appreciated yeah. that. Okay. And then yeah, what grade would you the, be? You... The CTCA every now and then just to like reorient myself. And I saw that one. So, so the problem is that then, you know, okay, 84% of patients only had grade one or two. Well, it was really almost like 50, 50, the grade one and grade two. So you're having more than roughly like a third of patients have either bolus IV fluid or low dose presser requirement. And I think that is going to tie in in a key way to whether or not this agent can ever be used in the outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a large myeloma population compared to <laughs> other diseases and other hematopoietic malignancies in this country. They're older patients slightly than certain other hematopoietic malignancies, uh, especially this after this many lines of prior therapy. So I'm just not sure having a like one in two, four, let alone a one in three chance of needing pressors um, is, is a safe space to give this outpatient yet. Yeah, when I hear um, presser, I don't think Friday afternoon in clinic. I think, yeah. I think the wards. I think the yeah. wards. Um, that's a terrific point as well. Very terrific point. I mean, um, the only other thought I had for you while you were talking that came to my mind is that you know the first two swings or the first sorry the first two bites of the BCMA apple, uh, belantamab mafodotin. My uh, eyes tear up just hearing about it um, for the obvious reason that the mafodotin is a lousy payload. I, I don't know if anyone needs to know this, but everywhere you, everywhere mafodotin is found, ocular toxicity seems to be coming, at least in my surveillance of the literature. And the yeah. answer is mafodotin is a shitty payload. You just need a different payload, a payload that doesn't have this ridiculous side effect. And, and, and that's coming. And then, and then um, the BCMA CAR-T, there's no curative fraction. That disappointed me. That greatly disappointed me and actually made me reconceptualize some of the rhetoric around whether or not there are people with um, with myeloma who are quote unquote cured with total therapy, or if rather you're just really doing an elaborate selection process for the most indolent biology. I think I, I'm of the belief that maybe no one is really cure, quote unquote cured of multiple myeloma. Um, um, so I guess what I want to say is my only last thought is um, BCMA is a decent target 
but neither of these will be the way in which we hit it in the future. We have BCMA bites coming, maybe a different toxicity profile, and maybe there's a BCMA antibody drug conjugate coming with a different payload. Um, but um, I, I, you know, I just don't think, yeah. I think the BCMA story is going to keep going. And I think this, I mean, this is going to get used a lot in the short term, next year, two years, three years, but I'm talking five years from now, will anyone really use this? I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, two points to that. One is, I mean, when we talk about what is the ideal target for CAR T cell, can we add a second target and a third target? Can we do CD19, 20, and 22 for, yeah. for DLBCL? I mean, that, I mean, you never get to have T cells again. Are we going to add 20 or 38 or something to BCMA? I mean, these patients already, after the flu psi and a BCMA targeted CAR, have high rates of prolonged cytopenias, yeah. um, 10% or more have neutropenia or thrombocytopenia greater yeah. than six months. And it's about yeah. a third have it greater than eight weeks such that, I mean, this, this shocked me, 88% of patients needed growth factor support on this study yeah. and 62% needed IVIG. I did not see that coming. Um, Cause so you those keep are... telling me that BCMA is so exquisitely targeted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but it's maybe it's gotta be, I mean, I guess two possibilities. One is it's obliterating hematopoietic stem cells. The other possibility is the cytokine release in the local microenvironment yeah. is so God awful. Hematopoietic stem cells don't stand a chance. Um, either way, it's not good, no. but um, I don't know. Maybe it is hitting hematopoietic stem cells. Well, I think the point is, you know, in contrast to that big mesenteric mass or those bulky uh, meson, uh, like, superclav lymph nodes that your DLBCL patient might have, any local dumpage of interferon gamma and all your other inflammatory- In the uh, bone marrow. In the bone marrow oh, is gonna suppress smart. your counts. Yeah, yeah, so whether yeah, or not yeah, there's yeah. any off-target effects truly in a CAR T mediated fashion directly <laughs> versus you've just dropped napalm on the situation, you know, I, I think it's the, it's the, um, the latter and, and patients just have to power through it. But as we make the CAR-Ts more potent, these other effects are not going to go away, especially not without further expensive supportive care measures. That's a good point. Okay. Okay. Um, anything, any last thought you have? I mean, I think you did a great job summarizing yeah, as always. So I'll, I'll give yeah. credit to a co-fellow. Okay. Um, Do it. Who mentioned that he's hearing of issues with Medicare reimbursement. For oh, this. boy. Um, and, and in case he's been misinformed, I'm not going to name drop him. Let's not um, name names. Okay. But essentially the Medicare DRG for CAR T's is in the mid two hundreds reimbursement. Ain't going to do it and for so me. Ain't going to do it for me, David. And so there's, they're having, it sounds like there are, ha there are issues with getting the extra outlier payments and add-ons yeah. around the country to, to get this product utilize. And, and part of that is purely the fact that a disproportionate number of patients with this meeting the, the inclusion criteria, meeting this indication are going to be on Medicare, as opposed to um, younger third line DLBCL patients potentially that are on private insurance. Sure. And so because the private insurers pay better for these products, um, the, the, the per patient profit versus loss um, in integration is going to be different depending on the disease. And so um, there's at least some word on the street that it's going to be hard to use these products in like the true fourth line or true fifth line, if not later. 
I um, see. I, t- I tell you, now that I, you've explained it to me, I tell you what's going to happen. There's a Medicare provision called NTAP, New Technology Assessment Program, and they'll, they'll cut you a little bit of extra money. And I bet right now 10 people, full-time job, is lobbying the shit out of them to give that money. Yeah. And they're going to get that money. And um, I will give a shout-out to um, yeah, Sankit Druva, who's a professor here at UCSF, and I. We wrote a paper on this uh, in JAM Oncology 2014, maybe, um, on blinitumumab. When blino first came out, they had difficult, obviously, as you as you will know, blino, an inpatient drug, very, very costly. And, and you know, it had the same kind of reimbursement issue. But they'll, uh, the lobbyists will always defeat the public purse. Uh, that's how, that's the game, that's the game we're in. Well, After so the all, that the NTAP is yes. being eliminated. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so so uh, CMS just did finalize, at least for the lymphoma CAR-Ts, to discontinue NTAP for Kimrayanias Carta, and they are not going to grant it for the other two. Really? Yeah. I haven't seen this. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all like me kind of scraping the internet for these discussions, but... Um, you you read this on Facebook? No, I just can't. <laughs> but I, I, right, I'm kind of interested. No, but, but they must be a way... Are, are they really doing this to try to bend the cost curve down? I, I hope so. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, I'd be surprised. But soon, soon to come, you know. I'll tell you that. Files okay. of I'm going to do more digging. Maybe I'll find some NTAP expert to talk about it more. But I guess my thought would be um, I'm skeptical when I hear that right off the bat because uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans, they don't agree on a lot of things, but they both agree on one thing that pharma must be rich. And that's the one thing I see they agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, um, yeah there's probably a nuance I don't know, but that, well, that's what I. But yeah. that's interesting. I mean, I, I'll look into it. And then the other thought I had was, um, no, I think, um, okay, we shall see about this reimbursement. Okay, and then the last thought, um, it's good to be back in oncology, huh? Talking oncology on this podcast. We've gotten a lot of grief about SARS-CoV-2. Everyone's got a complaint. Why are you talking about SARS-CoV-2? I'll tell you why I'm talking about SARS-CoV-2. Because I don't like what I'm hearing about SARS-CoV-2 is why I'm talking about SARS-CoV-2. So I try to correct it to what I think is more reasonable. But tensions are high. The J&J vaccine just uh, led to a, little, a touch of the VIT vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia thrombosis. You guys have VIT guidelines. VIT guidelines distributed. Um, any thoughts on VIT? Um, I mean, I, I think we're all trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do when we get that call from an outside hospital where they think it's going on and then we have to make some recommendation um, a lot of the discussion is centered on the fact that the older ELISA for the anti-PF4 antibody yes, yes. is falling out of favor is the one that was used in the published studies. And so yes. the, the labs that most institutions have are not the ones that were used in those studies for yes. it. And so, you know, how do we even work this thing up versus just clinical correlated to death? Um, and what if somebody checked a PF4 antibody in everybody? God forbid that happens. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the question is, you know, you get a patient who has, who got vaccine, unknown vaccine yes. and then in this situation, yes. like you, how do you presume they got the J and J one, or do you presume they didn't based on what the predominant trends are in your uh, local geography? Um, That's an interesting one. Yeah. What if they have a, what if they have a, what if they just have a DVT unknown vaccination um, and somebody sent a PF4 antibody and it comes back a, a touch high? Um, yeah. 
and yeah. they're a 35 year old woman. So it's like, yes, I know about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to be, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward. Um, and the reason I don't know if people know, but of course with hit, we send antibodies, but then we always do serotonin release assay confirmatory testing because there is some level of antibodies in the population. It varies by the service. I think people are on, I think if they're in a CT surgery service or an orthopedic surgery service, there's some more antibodies, exact mechanisms unknown. It's a really nice article on a review article on hit many years ago in, in the new England journal. Um, VIT, I think is different. Uh, unlike many of my peers, I was quick to say the moment I looked at that data, um, when it was one in a million, I was like, okay, we shall see. But the moment I knew when I heard it was one in about 200 K, I was like, oh no, it's over. I mean, it's just over. That's I'm going to do a separate monologue on that, that I'll put out. But I mean, I think it's over in the sense that that's just a little, that's just too common, um, for, something that's really yeah, terrible. I think there's, there's a, there was already enough COVID vaccination skepticism yes. that this, this is the dagger for, for that shot. I, I don't think anyone's going to spend any time in clinic convincing people to get it, especially if they're days to weeks away from getting the mRNA vaccine. It's a shame that we live in a time with rampant vaccine skepticism, and I don't appreciate it, and I don't agree with these people who are such skeptics. However- yeah. They are irrational. They are misguided. They need to be, I think, persuaded, perhaps with some love. I don't know what it takes to bring them back to see reason. Um, but I do think those of us who stand on the side of reason, um, when you hear about something bad in a vaccine, your gut reaction can't be to downplay it. You have to at least act as if you're taking it seriously. And if your gut reaction is to tweet some shitty meme about how it's less than OCPs and you're not introducing the fact that a blood clot in the leg over a 20 year time horizon is different than one that's leading to brain herniation. Uh, if you have no distinctions like that, then I think it's gonna be very difficult for people to take you seriously. So those yeah. are just my two cents. Um, well, David, it's a pleasure to talk to you. This is a really good study. Um, What's the drug again? Idacaptogene? Vicluso um, or Abecma. And now that, no, no brand names. Idacaptogene, no Vicluso. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody once explained to me why they have the name they do. Maybe next time we talk, we're going to have to explain the parts of the name. I mean, there's some logic to that. I'll make um, you a slide. Yeah, I saw somebody. I, I didn't make the slide. Somebody else made the slide. I just bootlegged it. Um, all right. It's a pleasure to talk to you. We'll be back with a new installment. Um, there's so, I guess, you know, we still have Zuma 5 to do. We still have follicular. That'll be awesome. That'll be really good. Yeah. That'll be good. But maybe CAR-T is too much. And by the way, why don't you do any solid tumor? Because I have I have to do this, uh, you know, the NEJM Checkmate 577, and I still haven't done it yet. I mean, I read the paper. I have my thoughts, but I haven't recorded them yet. So what? You, you turn a blind eye to this solid tumor and you're not interested? Oh, no. That's a great study. Okay. You should yeah. get a whole round table for it. Oh, you did? Okay. No, you should um, get a round table. Okay. Uh, I wish I were there because um, maybe I would have learned something. But I have I have a few things, and you and I think you've already predicted what I'm going to say because I always say the same stuff. Um, okay, to be continued. David Russler, Jermaine, pleasure to have you back on the podcast. We shall see you again soon. Likewise, man. Take care. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.